0: Welcome to the Conkey Ride Home for Tuesday, September 28th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today... Could removing methane from the atmosphere be a viable strategy for slowing global warming? And are all of these disparate new ideas and strategies to solve the climate crisis going to lead to real solutions? Plus, pulling back the curtain on the ongoing supply chain problems and the crypto trading hamster showing up the pros. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. There's an increasing amount of talk these days about carbon capture, the capturing of carbon from places like power and chemical plants and storing it often underground to prevent carbon dioxide from being released into the atmosphere. But a related method that some researchers are investigating is methane capture or rather methane removal, quoting the MIT Technology Review. Methane is a powerful greenhouse gas, and human activities like natural gas extraction and agriculture have more than doubled its concentration since the pre-industrial era. Removing some methane from the atmosphere, or stopping it from being emitted in the first place, won't stop climate change on its own, but methane removal could play a role in preventing the worst effects of warming this century. Methane is relatively scarce. Carbon dioxide is about 200 times more concentrated in the atmosphere. Nevertheless, it has contributed around 30% of total global warming to date, or about 0.5 degrees Celsius, according to a recent report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Though its lifetime in the atmosphere is only about 10 years, over short time frames, it's about 86 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. And because that lifetime in the atmosphere is roughly a decade, cutting methane emissions would be effective relatively quickly. In a report published Monday in the Royal Society, researchers used modeling to show that reducing methane in the atmosphere by 40% could reduce warming by 0.4 degrees Celsius by 2050 which would help us keep under the Paris Agreement's target goal of less than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming as compared to those pre-industrial levels. That's an even higher estimate for the benefits of methane removal than a UN report from May, which said that cutting methane emissions by 45% would reduce warming by just 0.28 degrees Celsius. But either way, those are some good odds, so how do we do it? Well, Vaisheli Nack, an atmospheric scientist for the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, who co-authored the UN report, says that a little more than half of emissions reductions could be done with already available techniques, like lowering our reliance on coal mines and patching up leaking natural gas wells. But as for the much more difficult task of removing methane, well, technically that isn't possible yet. Several groups, both research-based and commercial, are working on various methods, quoting again, most involving moving air over a catalyst to speed up methane's breakdown into carbon dioxide or other gases. The problems lie mainly in the sheer scale that would be needed. A system would have to process 0.04% of the Earth's total atmosphere to remove one teragram of methane, and humans produce about 350 teragrams of methane emissions each year end quote. It's super tough to figure out and to scale up, and if they want to reduce warming by mid-century, they'll need to have figured this out and implemented it within the next decade. One thing that could help? The forever answer, money. Carbon capture technology has also struggled with scaling up and is likewise an enormous endeavor, but commercial ventures have been popping up all over the world and some governments like the US have included it as a priority in their climate plans. So if methane removal got similar treatment, we might see it implemented in time. But on this notion of funding and commercial climate ventures, Paul Ford wrote an interesting piece in Wired yesterday, musing on the sheer amount of projects in the climate change sector right now, from endless academic studies to new businesses cropping up left and right. Which is great, because, you know, we need to take action on this yesterday, or rather 40 years ago. But Ford wonders how effective the disparate mess of shiny projects is. He describes them as butter knives being wielded against the dragon of global collapse. We seem to have a near endless amount of butter knives, but even by the thousands, are they enough to take on a dragon? Maybe if they worked in concert with some kind of organized strategy, quoting Ford and Wired... We have new strategies for recycling, new ways of keeping the sun out of the house, electricity from kites, analytics firms that use machine learning to fix insurance, companies that want to connect millennials with ecological brands, and everyone seems sure that they are the solution, that they will help us cross the threshold into degrowth. They know the answer. End quote. As he reflected on this buffet of overpromises, Ford couldn't help but be struck by deja vu. Quoting again, It's Web 1.0 all over again. We are in the pets.com puppet mascot era of climate. The comedy of the technology industry is playing again as a kind of Ibsenian tragedy. Scientists and academics told everyone about this thing for decades and almost everyone ignored them. But then, enough people got interested and now there's a market. And as a result, there are a million business models, a million solutions, huge promises of the change to come. We'll pour everything we have into green energy infrastructure. We'll transact in carbon marketplaces. We'll pull a trillion tons of CO2 out of the air every year. Never mind that today we can do about 0.0005% of that which rounds to nothing there are good vcs being venturesome with their capital there are funds that are investing in green things but and god help me for wishing it there's no google no apple no microsoft no monster in the middle taking its cut there isn't one carbon market there isn't one set of standards to follow there are dozens of options which means there isn't really anything at all Whole careers are dedicated, wonderful people, great science, online carbon calculators, but for right now, it rounds to nothing. Amazon Web Services hosts open climate data, but I wish there was an AWS for climate, and I wish I could tell you what it should do. End quote. But, Ford adds, it's not just that we're missing the big monolithic player, the worst part is what came at the end of the dot-com era. The bubble bursting. And this time, the stakes are so much higher. We can't afford a burst bubble. We have to get this right. And maybe we will. As Ford points out, we did learn from the last time. Or hopefully we did. You know, people who were there hopefully learned something and can apply that to how we're throwing technology at the wall of the climate emergency now. Ford is perhaps a little more optimistic than I'm finding myself able to be after reading his piece, but I'm glad he is, because we need that optimism right now. The, as he says, intoxication of knowing absolutely nothing but jumping in nonetheless. Let's bring the best parts of the dot-com era to the front and mix it with the lessons learned from the past so that we can, all together, slay this dragon. For the last year and some change, I've been regularly sharing updates on items that are in short supply. From cleaning and hygiene supplies to home office appliances, and then home workout gear, and then outdoor furniture. Some of it was easy enough to predict. Then we got into shortages that only insiders really saw coming. Coins, condiments, buffalo wings, lumber followed by paper, computer chips followed by cars. Every time I've shared one of these on the shortage report, I've included a little bit of context about the supply chain leading to the shortage. Well, over the weekend, Amy Davidson Sorkin at The New Yorker dove a little deeper into that nebulous supply chain explanation we all keep throwing around. Sorkin begins with the caveat that, As consumers in the U.S. and as a nation, we are not experiencing anything like scarcity quite yet. But nonetheless, quote, supply chain trouble suggests that something is off with the way we're operating in the world and that we don't yet know the extent of our vulnerabilities. The issues can also be a serious impediment to the broader economic recovery end quote. And the biggest cause has of course been COVID-19, but the ripple effects of the root pandemic cause are often unpredictable or tougher to tease out. Sorkin uses the example of the rental car shortage, quote, in the case of rental cars, when travel decreased sharply in the spring of 2020, many companies generated cash by selling off a sizable portion of their fleets. They may have assumed that they could just buy more cars later, but when the time came, cars weren't available. The main reason for that is a worldwide shortage of semiconductors, the chips used in automotive systems. The supply has been constrained by COVID related plant closures in Asia, where many of them are made. Last week, the Wall Street Journal estimated that because of the chip famine, some 7 million cars were not built. End quote. And writing in Forbes earlier this month, Garth Friesen explained how when everything shut down, factories, ocean carriers, everything, it was tough to start back up. Quote, from a logistics perspective, restarting the manufacturing machine after the lockdown turned out to be quite difficult. The complex system that moves raw materials and finished products around the globe requires predictability and precision. Both had been lost. End quote. It was a mess, and it is far from back to normal. But there's also the labor shortage. I've talked before about shipping delays being caused in part by a shortage of shipping containers, but that's not actually always true. In most places, there are plenty of shipping containers, there just aren't enough dock workers or truck drivers anymore to keep up with demand. And those aren't the only professions being hit. Restaurant workers and healthcare workers are at the top of the list of people who are leaving and not returning to their jobs, often due to how intense their jobs became during the pandemic and, especially in the case of restaurant workers, how poorly they were compensated for that. And now, as the pandemic rages on, many fear going back to a workplace where they could catch COVID or have to deal with increasingly hostile customers. There are so many other issues that I could bring up about why people aren't returning to certain jobs, but suffice it to say that, as has been the case for much of the pandemic, when we say that the pandemic is causing the supply chain issues, a lot of how it's causing it is in how it's exposed problems that were always there. There were also already a number of storms simmering that set the stage for accelerated shortages, like trade tensions between the US and China, for one. Sorkin says that in this way, supply chain issues is an insufficient shorthand. For one, a lot of the issues have also stemmed from severe weather events, like the wildfires on the North American West Coast, the flooding in Europe, the cold snap in Texas. Sorkin says that one estimate cites Hurricane Ida as having wrecked a quarter of a million cars in one foul swoop, to say nothing of the buildings, homes, and rail lines it destroyed or disrupted. But in some places, there have been additional causes that some leaders might like to blame on the pandemic but really aren't. Like in the UK, where they've seen shortages on fuel, many food items, and a reluctance to return to certain professions, especially truck drivers. I saw a darkly funny post on Reddit today comparing headlines from The Express, a right-leaning tabloid, before and after Brexit took effect. Things like, more reasons to leave, Brexit Britain to take back control of its fishing waters, and then several months later, We didn't vote for this. Fishing collapse as UK firms go bust and exporters flee to EU. Another headline from before. Cheaper food after EU exit. Consumer boost as experts now say that prices will come down. And then later. Food shop alert as your supermarket bill is set to soar due to EU red tape. Irish Tisha Michael Martin said that the issues caused by Brexit have been masked by COVID. And according to Sorkin, we need to be more honest about the causes of the supply chain disruptions. Whether it's COVID, international relations, or the climate emergency, we need to look to the root causes even within each of those. Quote, the scramble for quick fixes, clearing down power lines, restocking pasta, can distract from the need for systemic change. The real challenge when it comes to thinking about supply chains isn't making sure that a container ship is unloaded, it's deciding how we want to live, end quote. But to end with a bit of levity here, I'm gonna throw a McSweeney's piece in the show notes called an excerpt from my new anxiety dream where I personally break the global supply chain. It's a fun short story featuring a literal global supply chain conveyor belt and Santa Claus leading a public execution. It's great. Mr. Gox is a cryptocurrency trader who is up 20% on his lifetime career performance, higher than the return on some major stock markets. He frequently streams on Twitch while he's trading and keeps his Twitter audience informed of his trades. Oh, and yes, Mr. Gox is a hamster. His owner, alongside a longtime programming friend, assist Mr. Gox in his crypto dealings. They've built him an office that he can access through a tunnel from his usual cage whenever he wants. The office is tripped out with a few decorative items like a desk with three monitors and a view of a skyline, as well as some more practical items. Quoting the BBC, By running in his intention wheel, he selects which cryptocurrency he'd like to trade, as the wheel spins through the different options. His office floor has two tunnels nearby, one for buy, one for sell. And every time he runs through a tunnel, the electronics wired to his office complete a trade, according to Mr. Gox's desires, end quote. And from Vice, quote, He buys and sells in 20 euro increments and is locked down of using the tunnels for 20 seconds after he's run through them. This prevents the temperamental hamster from immediately selling what he's just bought. The tokens that Mr. Gox buys and sells run the gamut. He's got positions in Bitcoin, Doge, Ethereum, and Polkadot, among others. He's up right now, but he's usually running at a loss. Still, he's had success. On Monday, the Mr. Gox Twitter account said the hamster was up 19.41%, outperforming the S&P 500 for the past three months, end quote. According to the two anonymous German men behind Mr. Gox's day trading, they got the idea when discussing how a lot of people invest, especially in crypto, without really knowing what they're doing. So, quote, we were joking about whether my hamster would be able to make smarter investment decisions than we humans do, end quote. And despite the fact that Mr. Gox is apparently making smarter investment decisions on occasion, the pair insist the project is for entertainment purposes only, and that you should not take advice from Mr. Gox, who after all, is named after the Mt. Gox cryptocurrency exchange that used to be the biggest in the world before losing 850,000 bitcoins from its customers under mysterious circumstances and subsequently going bankrupt. But you can enjoy the lighthearted antics of Mr. Gox on Twitch about once a day. Link to watch those in the show notes. Well, that's all I got for you today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.